Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Savvy Psychologist. I'm Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, and every week I'll help you meet life's challenges with evidence-based research, a sympathetic ear, and zero judgment. This week, dear listeners, I am happier than a slinky on an escalator to share with you a big announcement. For the past two years, I've been working on a book for you titled How to Be Yourself. Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety. And it comes out March 13th. It has been a dream come true for me to write this, and I do have to say also the hardest thing I've ever done. So in celebration, this week we start a series on all things anxiety, shyness, introversion, and today, performance. So today we'll talk about performing under pressure with performance psychologist and violinist, Dr. Noah Kageyama. Noah is on the faculty of the Juilliard School and the New World Symphony and is a conservatory-trained violinist with degrees from Oberlin and Juilliard. Noah specializes in teaching musicians how to utilize sports psychology principles and realize their full abilities under pressure. He has conducted workshops at the New England Conservatory, Peabody, Eastman, the Perlman Music Program, and the National Orchestral Institute, and his work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Musical America, and Lifehacker. He maintains a coaching practice and authors the Bulletproof Musician blog, which has over 100,000 monthly readers. So Dr. Kageyama, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I'm really excited to talk to you because we have never had a performance psychologist on the show before. But you are a performance psychologist and a as you said, Oberlin and Juilliard trained violinist. So have you ever had difficulty with performance anxiety? Was this something that was personal as well as professional for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think anyone who says that they've never had an issue with anxiety or nerves is probably either lying to themselves or, <laughs> or to you. It's something that we all experience, and, and it hasn't been talked about so much back in the day. I think back in the day, it was sort of this sink or swim sort of thing, where mm -hmm. if you couldn't deal with it, then you don't belong here, which is, is really unfortunate, because a lot of really talented, uh, gifted musicians and artists ended up taking that to heart, and I think giving up and quitting, mm. uh, or turning to something else. And for me, it ranged from you know, those catastrophic performances where all you want to do is turn invisible and disappear and, and turn back time or something sure. to the sort of consistently frustrating subpar performances where like you knew you were capable of so much more, but you just couldn't quite figure out how to do that consistently. And it wasn't horrible, but it was also nowhere near your best. Mm -hmm. and, um, made even worse by the fact that once in a blue moon, you'd have one of those transcendent performances where everything just works. It's like, well, how did that happen? 
Um, yeah. And that's frustrating to not know what the special sauce was or how that happened. So that's this is a really nice segue then, because in your blog, you talk about the difference between a practice mindset and a performance mindset. And I had, I had never really thought about the difference between those. So what what are those and what are the mistakes we make regarding each? So when kids are first starting out playing an instrument, it's fun to watch because a lot of times they're just having fun banging away at the keyboard or, you know, making sounds come out of guitar or violin. And uh, part of it's sometimes painful for the parent, you know, <laughs> having to listen to it. But there's a lot of joy and enjoyment just in making sound. And a lot of times the early struggle is in getting them to be self-critical and to stop when they miss a note or mess something up. Just this morning, my daughter was playing this piece and, you know, I was kind of counting on a hand just to keep track of, you know, which notes she was skipping or missing or playing the wrong notes on. And, and at one point, you know, she played a wrong note and she snuck a quick glance at me to see if I noticed. And I totally did, obviously. <laughs> I don't know that I noticed. But she would have just kept going if she thought that I missed it. Mm. And so she's getting to the point where she's now starting to recognize when she's making mistakes. But um, that's a huge part of what students have to develop and what musicians have to develop, this ability to self-monitor, to self-critique, to then stop and fix these problems. The, the biggest element being to be able to listen critically to what's happening as you're doing it. Because if you don't, if you just play like you know, a beginner does for fun, you're not fixing anything. You're not stopping. You're not identifying problems. You're not improving. You're just playing and doing it over and over, hoping that eventually it'll get better. And the problem is that it kind of will, even if you don't really self-monitor, just by doing it mm. thousands of times, you mm -hmm. do kind of automatically get better. Yeah. But at some point you plateau and it becomes very frustrating. So one out element is just getting better at this sort of practicing, this deliberate practice um, process and the mindset. You know, Anders Ericsson has done this uh, life's work of research on what is deliberate practice and how do we improve its skills. Um, the problem, of course, is that that is essentially the opposite of what has to happen when we're performing. Yes. So the better we get at deliberate practice and this practice mindset, we're basically training ourselves to do the opposite of what we need to do on stage. And if we go on stage and perform while criticizing every note that comes out of our instrument or you know, basically beating ourselves up for forgetting to mention one of our key points in a speech that we're giving or, again, beating ourselves up for missing a pass or missing a catch in a particular game, we're not present, we're not focused on what we can control, and we're not doing what it is that we need to do. And so the challenge for a lot of musicians and high performers is figuring out how to turn off the self-monitoring critique mm -hmm. in your head and focus instead on what do I have to do right now? That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So something that I tend to do and, and I'm trying to work on, and many of us who are prone to anxiety do this, and that is to over prepare. We, you know, rehearse our piece or, you know, our lines or our role. And so th this sounds like that could be the deliberate practice, but how, how much is too much? Like, how do you know when practice isn't helping anymore? When, like, how do you tell if you've plateaued? You know, it's a good question. And I think sometimes we over-prepare because of the anxiety yes. associated with an upcoming right. performance or a speech or it, a game. It becomes just a way to kind of reduce your anxiety, but doesn't actually help your ultimate performance or even necessarily, you know, make you know your speech or your piece or your lines or whatever better. It just, it, it becomes this method by which just to reduce anxiety. 
Right. And sometimes we, it's even counterproductive because we start playing it more, we start working on something more, and it starts feeling worse and worse um, as right. we get more critical. And so we start getting more anxious, so we do it even more. And right. it just, again, snowballs. Well, so for me, the interesting thing here is it's more that we tend to deceive ourselves into thinking we're more prepared than we really are. Mm. Sometimes when we over-prepare in that way, we engage in lots and lots of repetition, especially as we get closer to a performance. Um, one of the things that was relatively new to me that there is actually quite a bit of research on going back a few decades are these different ways of approaching practice. So it's not just this idea of deliberate practice and what to do when you're practicing. You know, there are a lot of terms out there. But the biggest problem I think that over-preparing in this sense does is we do a lot of what's called masked practice. It's like my daughter again on the piano. She'll play the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over until it starts sounding better. Mm -hmm. And so it starts feeling like, oh, you know what? This, I got this. This is pretty good. This is pretty comfortable. I'm pretty prepared. It's a little bit like the night before test, reading and rereading the chapter and your notes over and over and over, and you start feeling like you've got this down, but then you show up for the test, and suddenly you know that you've studied this stuff, but you can't remember right. exactly what the details were. The problem with this masked practice where it's basically a lot of repetition all in a row is that it makes everything increasingly familiar. But we're not actually practicing remembering these things. We're practicing putting it into our head as opposed to taking it out. Mm, that's a great way to put that. So practice tests is where we practice retrieval. And that's what is being tested at a game or performance or speech or test. And so for me, it's not even so much a worry about over-preparing, but a worry of doing too much repetition over and over, which doesn't really give us a true sense of how prepared we really are. So the idea would be to space out um, our practice, where instead of doing hours and hours all in one day, to split you know, our practice sessions into you know, one-hour chunks or 30-minute chunks, whatever fits into your schedule, so that we keep coming back to the same thing, just like flashcards, right? Like mm. you keep coming back to the same questions after doing a bunch of other flashcards, which gives you a chance to start forgetting what the answer was to that first flashcard. And there's actually um, a type of practice scheduling called random or interleaved practice, which is essentially exactly that flashcard approach, where instead of, for instance, practicing a bunch of forehands for 15 minutes and then a bunch of backhands for 15 minutes and then a bunch of volleys for 15 minutes, you would do five minutes of forehands, five minutes of backhands, five minutes of volleys, and then another five of forehands, five of backhands, five of volleys, and so forth. The idea being, you know, that way, you have to keep remembering how to hit a forehand. Or if you're working on three different pieces with five-minute increments instead of one piece for 15 minutes, you have to keep remembering how to play that piece again and again so that that remembering portion is where it goes into long-term memory and really helps prepare us to be able to produce exactly what we want the very first time, not like the third or the fourth or the fifth time we have to perform or play something. So the times we go blank, then it sounds like that is a problem with retrieval. It's a problem with remembering how to do the thing we've practiced that likely if we've crammed or if we've kind of rehearsed mindlessly, and this could even relate to social anxiety. I know a lot of people will sometimes rehearse like stories in their head or rehearse what they want to say and then go blank in the moment. And so it sounds like that the problem there is that time is spent putting the information in, but not taking the information out, which is what is crucial to practice to avoid going blank. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. So on the podcast, we like to talk about the research. And so you wrote a popular blog post that addressed a common question and addressed some of the research um, related to this. Does the audience actually notice our mistakes? Because we feel like they do, and you know, we certainly notice them. And so um, I'll relate this to social anxiety, because in social anxiety, we feel like we're being scrutinized. If we perceive we make a mistake, it feels like everybody can see it and is judging us. But is that true? Does the audience really notice errors to the extent that we think they do? Yeah, so the study that you're referring to, I found really fascinating. And I wish they had replicated it with not just pianists, but like a whole range of other instruments. Sure. Um, but essentially, they took, you know, 10 Yale piano majors, um, and they gave them an hour to learn and record four short pieces. So obviously, these pieces were not going to be note perfect. And that was by design. Mm. Um, when they counted up all the note errors, so, you know, missed a note or played a wrong note or just garbled something in the process, there were 380 total errors across these 10 pianists playing these four pieces. Uh, so then they had like another nine Yale pianists um, listen to these recordings with a score and just circle every missed note, every wrong note, every garbled section to see how many of them they could actually notice with a score in front of them. And these were pieces that these pianists knew. They were familiar pieces. They weren't new modern works or anything like that. And a couple of them had actually performed them in recitals. And so these were things that they really should know pretty well. Yet uh, what they found is that as a group, only 38% of the 380 errors were noticed by the whole group of pianists. 38%? That, yes. Wow. So more than half of the notes just went by without them noticing. And the highest individual score was 22%. So one pianist out of this group noticed 22% of the errors, but missed, you know, 78% of them. Right. The lowest score, one pianist only caught 7% of the errors. So these are pianists who know these pieces right. listening to people playing on their instrument. With a score. And they still, yeah. right, and they still didn't notice most of the mistakes. So for the average audience member who's just there to enjoy things and is not specifically there with a score trying to find note mistakes, right. they're probably going to notice far fewer errors than even other musicians would. Um, and, and actually, there was another study I found recently where 
they had this one pianist make a, um, a video recording of a performance in which he made a deliberate memory slip. Mm. And one version of the video recording showed him, you know, kind of frowning and shaking his head and looking frustrated. The other video just showed him playing on as if nothing had ever happened. Um, and it was noticeable enough that even non-musicians could tell, okay, that's not, there's something going okay, on. Here. Something's off. And, and they had both musicians and non-musicians continuously rate the performance as they watched it, right? So you start off, it's like, oh, you know, I give it a, a seven or six. And like, as things get better, it's like, you maybe increase the score. As things get a little bit worse, you decrease it. And so the idea is, you know, how consistent does their performance end up being from beginning to end? Well, in the version of the recording where the pianist made a face, obviously the score went down mm. pretty precipitously at that moment. Um, in the version where he didn't make a mistake, it went down a little bit, but not nearly as much as when he made a face. And by the end of the recording, uh, in the version where he didn't make a face, his end of recording performance rating was almost exactly the same as his beginning of performance rating of quality. Whereas in the, vi in the video where he made a face, it never recovered. Like oh. it went down. Oh, interesting. And it, and it stayed down even by the end. Huh. Okay. So I think a lot of times it's our reaction to mistakes that actually makes other people um, rate us as being less competent or less interesting or less socially competent. Whereas it's not really our competence at all. It's just it's it's us telegraphing our mistakes or our discomfort that ends up being what other people pick up on. So if we broadcast the fact that we made a mistake, like we, I don't know, apologize excessively or, yeah, like make a face or slap our forehead or something, then that's, that's what calls attention to the mistake. It's not actually the mistake. And so if we kind of roll on and act as if nothing happened, then it's almost as if nothing had happened. So like in the study, the score recovered, like you said, in that version. So if we just kind of keep it on, no one will notice is the take home. Absolutely. And then, you know, certainly we can beat ourselves up about it a little bit when we get home sure. when it's time to actually address that or fix it or modify our strategy for the next time. But in the moment of a performance, yeah, the audience isn't there to find out how many mistakes we're making. Um, and so our job is to make sure that they have a good time there and not have to take on all our baggage. That makes a lot of sense. This is, oh, this is so helpful. So I'll ask you just one, one more question. In your experience, what's a technique that has helped the most people? You see a lot of um, musicians as clients to help them with their performances. If there was one thing you could pinpoint, what's been the most helpful technique for the most people in terms of being better performers? I think the most, at least one of my favorite um, areas to work on is, is focus, which seems pretty broad. But being able to identify a, exactly what the most useful or effective or performance-enhancing performance thing to think about is at any point in time, and then being able to practice staying there for extended periods of time has been hugely helpful. So, for instance, one technique that comes out of some research that was done at Arizona State involved, uh, you know, an orchestra playing the last movement of the Brahms First Symphony twice with different sets of instructions before each. Before the first run-through that was recorded, they were asked to imagine the best performance they can and play just like that. Mm -hmm. The second time, they were asked to, you know, play as well as they could, but to offer subtle new nuances to their performance. You know, a little extra wiggle of vibrato here, maybe a little bit of 
change in your sound or articulation here and there. Something so subtle that maybe your stand partner, anyone sitting around you, wouldn't even notice. Hmm. But it's like the approach is different. You're being spontaneous, a little bit more improvisational. You're not trying to recreate some gold standard, but you're just trying to create something pretty compelling and cool and new in the moment. And so obviously the musicians had more fun the second time. But what's interesting is when um, about 150 local community choir members um, were asked to listen to the recordings and you know, asked if they had a preference between the two. And I forget the numbers exactly. I might get it That's reversed. Okay. But yeah. it was something something like like 80% of those um, who listened expressed a preference. And like 88% of those who expressed a preference preferred the subtle nuance version. Wow. How so something came across. Yeah. And, um, and one of the interesting things that this can do for musicians is it gives them something very concrete to focus on, right? Because if you're focused on creating something new now, you can't worry about what just happened because mm. then you're not creating something new. Mm-hmm. Or you can't worry about what's going to happen because, again, then you're not creating something new right now. And it tends to be not just freeing, but it tends to keep your focus in the present where it, it's going to be most useful and impactful to performing well. So to focus on creating something new rather than recreating the gold standard that's in your head. Right. Okay. Thank you so much for talking with us today. This has been really helpful and really interesting. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for making The Savvy Psychologist a part of your life. And thanks for joining me for this special episode in the run-up to my first book, How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic, and rise above social anxiety. It comes out March 13th, and Susan Cain, the best-selling author of Quiet, is calling it a groundbreaking roadmap to finally being your true, authentic self. And you can pre-order it wherever you like to get your books. Now, if you are already a newsletter subscriber, keep an eye out for a bunch of pre-order book launch freebies coming your way. And if you'd like to be a newsletter subscriber and get in on that action, you can sign up at quickanddirtytips.com newsletters or at ellenhendrickson.com. As always, The Savvy Psychologist is strictly for informational purposes and doesn't substitute for mental health care from a licensed professional. As always, check out ellenhendrickson.com for free resources to beat social anxiety. And next Friday, we will talk about how we're all doing introversion wrong for a happier healthier mind. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.